Well, hello, Mountain. You're here on time this weekend. Great. Glad to, glad to see you. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. We're ready to roll. We want to say hello to our friends at the Bel Air campus over on the other side of town. Hello, Bel Air. Glad you're here. And we want to give a big shout and a hug and howdy to our friends at the Edgewood campus. Still feels great. Everybody here who's listening to me now, say hello to the Edgewood campus especially. And Bel Air, say hello to the Edgewood campus. Hello, Edgewood Campus. There you are. We love you. I know a lot of you couldn't um, be with us, but we had a really special time last Sunday. Uh, it's kind of a grand opening for our uh, epicenter, the community center building over there. It was just an awesome time. I brought you some pictures because I knew you couldn't all be there, okay? So here we, we had a great turnout. Here's a bunch of kids, kids, kids. It was a good time. Um, we, had, we had food. We had hamburgers and hot dogs for a thousand, and they all went. I don't know if that means we had a thousand people or just people who eat a lot. I don't know. Uh, we, here's Luke uh, talking. We cast some vision about things and how God got us here. And uh, here's David Woods. He's uh, g- give us a chance to introduce David. He's our program director for the Epicenter and just talking about some of the things he dreams will happen there. We had a hula hoop contest with some kids and the winner got to cut the ribbon and there they are cutting the ribbon. And then you should have seen as soon as the doors were open, those kids just poured in there. Here's a bunch of them playing basketball and just great to see that space that the mountain people through the faith uh, that God has given us that we were able to, to make happen and then instantly it was just like there are these kids and uh, you, know, you know here's a picture of Regina with one of them just uh, just love it you know we're, we're going to change the trajectory of some children we're going we're gonna to take that beautiful place Edgewood and uh, bring even more hope and love to it and there's so much that God wants to do there and just, it's just to remind us it, it was such a great day but it's just a reminder of all that's to come um, it's not about Luke, it's not about Edgewood, it's not about Mountain, it's not about you, it's not about me. It's, it's at the epicenter of the epicenter is Jesus. And he's going to make some stuff happen. So let's show our appreciation to the Lord for what he's done, for the people who are going to serve. It's just a great day, good time. So now, here we go, on with chapter 7. How many of you read chapter 7? Good. Hey, good, good job. Um, if you haven't, if you're just joining us, grab the books, call the story. It'll help us run through the whole Bible. We're about a fourth of the way through already. It's not too late to kind of get caught up. Um, read along, get in a group, talk to some friends about it as you go. We're going to do a quick review here. Ready? In the beginning, God created everything, right? And it was all. And then sin entered through our rebellion and, and, and it was all broken, bad, whatever. And, and then God says, I'm going to pull it back together again. I'm, I'm not going to leave it that way, broken like that. I, I'm going to be, put a plan into place that will call people back to myself, back to each other, and restore and put things to rights how it was in the beginning when it was very good. And that's really what the, the story is about, is God's promise uh, to bring us back to himself and to pursue us. And so he does that through Abraham and, and makes a promise that he will bless all nations through this one family and then a nation. Isaac and Jacob and then his son Joseph, they end up over in Egypt. Then God sends a deliverer named Moses that pulls him out of Egypt with an exit strategy. And that's where they parted the Red Sea and got through. And then they were almost there to the promised land. But as last week we saw, they got stuck out there in the middle of nowhere for a while. They wandered just like we wander. Remember this map from last week? Here's the nation of Israel spending 40 years in the desert going the roundabout way. Somebody wondered with all that wandering and traipsing in the countryside if maybe what was going on was something like what was going on in this next picture. It's a picture of Moses' wife saying to him, just for crying out loud, Moses, why can't we just ask for directions? 
Maybe that's why they wandered for 40 years. I don't know. I don't think so. Some of it was a delay for development, you remember, from last week, or a delay for discipline or other reasons. God was working on them and in them. But we come now to chapter 7, which is in your Bibles, Joshua chapter 1. The whole book of Joshua. We're going to kind of dig through as much of it as we can. And if the Israelites, the people of God, thought they had some really interesting and tough stuff to face up to this point, well, they've got some big things in front of them now for sure. And God has brought them right to the edge of this promised land. The promise is about to be fulfilled, it seems. And it's like he's brought them right up to the edge of their, the place where, where their fear and their courage are going to do a wrestling match. Can you imagine that in your own life, where, where those points in time when your fear and your courage kind of have to wrestle, see who's going to win out? That's where they are. Do you have any fear? Do you have any phobias? Do you know what phobias are? I, I don't know the technical definition, but I've always thought of them as like irrational fears. They, they, seem, they may seem unreasonable to someone else. There's no logical reason for it, but they're very real to you, right? So phobias. I did, there's a couple interesting ones. Um, how about this one? Sedonglophobia. Let me try it again. Sedonglophobia. Anybody know what that is? You may not. It is. It's unusual. It is the fear of cotton balls. It's why you maybe haven't heard of it. It might not be that, cotton, you know, that, that common. Not cotton balls. Uh, Chorophobia. Anybody know what that is? That's, that's the fear of clowns. And I actually know some people with that. They're like, they've creeped out by those people who paint their face. Here's one I never heard of. Omphalophobia. Uh, that's right. This person up here, for whatever strange reason, knows that's the fear of belly buttons. I thought of coming out here with a tube top just to see who had it, but... I'd probably create some other kind of fears. How about this one? Alladoxophobia. That's the fear of opinions. What do you think about that? And one last one. Epiphalophobia. That, that's the deep fear that your favorite sports team will be really, really bad and win only one game <laughs> all season. I didn't even know about that one until just a few weeks ago. There's all kinds, those, there, are, there are also very reasonable fears, aren't there, in life? Things that, that maybe don't fall into the category of phobias. And I, and I, I bet in, in, a, in a place like this, as you're listening to this, we can be honest about some of the real fears we have as well. Some of, some of you have a teenage kid or a 20-something kid in your life you really care about and they're making these stupid decisions and you can't reel them in, you can't protect them, they're just, just like they're doing it anyway. And you have fear about some stuff with their life. And, or maybe you're afraid for your job. Some of us some of us have been out of work for a while or were furloughed. We fear going to the doctor and hearing, I don't know what you have, I can't, I, I can't figure it out. Or we fear, we fear hearing, here's what you have and I can't do anything about it. Or, or we have fears about our marriages or our relationships slipping through our fingers. We have fear about recovering from the housing market or fears about how something's going to turn out. A lot of it, we have a lot of fears standing right in front of us. We've wandered a bit and we've got fears in front of us, just like the children of Israel. And I'd like you to just kind of think about one of the reasons they have so much fear. One of the reasons they have so much fear 
is that their fearless leader, Moses, just dies. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Moses. Now, don't blow by that. Think about what that means. How long has Moses been their fearless leader? Forty years. The one national, one spiritual leader, one go-to guy, and now all of a sudden he's gone. It kind of leaves you sometimes. And also, this is a good time to insert here, think about this. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. You're picking that up, right? This is the guy who's walked around with these whiny babies for 40 years, tried to do his best to follow God, and he doesn't, he doesn't get in. Apparently, he let some pride rise up in him or you know, his attitude dishonored God. Does it bother anybody else that he doesn't get in? I mean, come on. Doesn't seem fair. Seems like motion, he got impatient. God told him to speak to the rock. He struck the rock. If it was me, I'd have struck something or someone a long time earlier than he did. But as the people who are 20 years and older, older are waiting to die, he dies with them, and he doesn't get to go in. It doesn't seem fair. But I'm not God. Neither are you. Which is a kind of helpful way to remind ourselves as we introduce some difficult things today that there's a lot of things, especially in this section of the Bible, that we may not at first blush understand or like, appreciate, may not fit with our sensitivities or the way that we would do things if we were God, we think. Like circumcision, for one. I mean, for crying out loud. Some of you are still arguing about baptism. Arguing with God about whether, you know, that, that's a good way to identify as one of his children today. Well, wait till you hear about circumcision. You better, as my friend Tim Harlow says, if you're on the fence about baptism, you better hurry up and get in the water before he changes it back to the way it used to be. <laughs> but there's all kinds of these things that seem strange to us because it's a different time and place and so forth. Here's what I'm processing. As, as I stand here in disagreement with God about, about Moses getting into the promised land, it's probably likely that Moses would come along and say, clam up, Ben. I mean, for, for Ben, instead of going into the land of Canaan with milk and honey, I got to go into the land of heaven and I'm, I'm with the Lord. You know, about one second after Moses died, he said, I don't need no stinking promised land. But it's, it's, it's that matter of perspective and that, 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 that different understanding. And the point is, there's things that we can't always see. Remember the lower story, upper story. And the lower story is where we live, and it's where the guys in the Bible lived. It's where Moses lived when he heard one day, you're not going into the promised land. But the upper story is what God's doing. It's, it's God working out things that we don't always get to see. And so you've got to decide if you look at your upper story, if you look at the lower story as, as if you know everything there is to know, and then therefore you hold God into account for your standards, or whether you eventually surrender your lower story in some kind of trust to a God who actually is God, trusting that even though we can't see it, we trust that he knows what he's doing. Like, like when Ab It didn't sound like a good idea for Abraham to raise his knife over his kid, but it turned out God actually knew what he was doing when, when we finally saw the full upper story. It didn't sound like a good idea when Joseph got you know, thrown into a ditch, into a well, and, and his parents lied to and sold off into slavery. But it turns out, doesn't it, that God kind of knows what he's doing. We're going to run across some other things that don't sound like they could possibly have any good thing come out of them. And you're going to have to kind of decide when stuff happens in the lower story that's really ugly and brutal, is, is God still writing an upper story or not? That's where courage and faith go to battle. And that's the battle that really we're talking about this weekend. And my challenge to you, 
is to remember what the scriptures say from beginning to end, that God is great, that he can do what he wants to do, he has power. God is good, that fundamentally to the core, he's a God of compassion and love and cares about you and me, and that that God is faithful, he will do what he said he's going to do. God is great, God is good, God is faithful. And at the end of the day, as you're working out your lower story, you either believe it or you don't. My call to you is to rise up and be strong and courageous even when you don't understand what he's doing. Even when he's not doing what you want him to do. And to declare, I believe that God is, God is great, God is good, God is faithful. Now, this is a pretty good time for me to, to take a time out. And, and let's take a little excursus just for a minute because there is one of these questions in, in these texts. How many of you read some things in chapter 7 that made you kind of recoil and repulse and made you scratch your head and go, what in the world is, is going on here? If you read it, it probably did that. There's, there's, there's tension, and we want to just live in that tension for a little bit. We want to embrace it and, and see what it might say to us. And one of, the, one of the reasons for the tension is there's a whole lot of violence. And we have very different standards today about violence and killing. And you've got God striking down people for touching the ark. He causes plagues to come on people who complain. There's war. There, there's, there's the wiping out the Canaanites, you know, utter, you know, burning the city down. You've got, you've got all, and it kind of makes you all just want to recoil a little bit. And, and it seems monstrous. It seems barbaric. It seems uh, uncouth. It, it, it how, how does it, and it sort of starts making God look a little like a vindictive meanie. And then you've got this tension that also arises. A lot of people start thinking, you know, it sounds to me like the Old Testament God isn't even like the, the New Testament God. You know, Jesus kind of, he comes in calm storms, but, you know, God in the Old Testament, he sends hail to kill people. Sort of reminds me of this Far Side cartoon. Remember the Gary Larson Far Side cartoons? I always liked those. Here's my, one of my favorites. It's God sitting here at his, you know, at his computer, and he's, you know, the poor sap walking along with the piano, you know, and God getting ready to hit the smite button. Like, that's what God does. He gets his jollies kind of sitting up there, you know, smite. And, and, and we can laugh at that, but there's things in this text that aren't, aren't, aren't very funny, and, and there are, they seem horrible. And I just want to acknowledge it's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's, it's far worse to sort of tear those pages out of your Bible or say, I don't see it, I don't want to talk about it because I'm afraid it might rattle my faith or something like that. It's far better to look at it and live with that tension. Don't explain it away, don't ignore it, and don't also take this little section of Scripture and pretend it's the only thing and sort of say, well, because of that and I'm not going to believe this or that... A lot of people want to take these texts and kind of impeach God, you know. Say, if that's the kind of guy in charge, then I don't want anything to do with him. Because they, they often don't look at the whole story. The truth of the matter is that everyone who knew God in the Old Testament, people who really knew him, wanted more of him. They wanted more of him. They wanted to be close to him. It's specifically named you know, like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha, so many others. They knew God intimately and they, were, they wanted to be close to him. They didn't think of him as a piano-dropping smiter, but a faithful God who was great and good that they wanted more of and to be close to. 
And that's a helpful frame for this whole conversation when we're talking about this hard stuff and violence is remember this, that whatever we know about God is filtered through who Jesus is because Jesus is the fullest representation of who God really is. We get little snapshots of God all through the Old Testament. His character really never changes, but the ultimate and most beautiful expression of God is in Jesus Christ. So whatever we want to understand about God, whatever conclusions you, you draw have to be consistent with the one who said if you've seen me you've seen the father another part of the problem we sometimes have is that we'd like to say well in the old testament god's a big meanie and the new testament you know jesus comes along he's pretty much cool with everything and that's really not a, that's really a problem because of the old testament there's so many ways that the character of god is described as loyal and compassionate and faithful and generous and and long-suffering and, and we kind of forget all of that but that's why any of those people are still around at all is that he's compassionate and we kind of forget that Jesus is, Jesus said, you know, you mess with a kid, I'm going to put, a, you'll be like having a, you'll wish you had a rock around your neck and thrown into the sea. You know, he talks about uh, hell more than, than he talks about heaven. He, he talks about um, weeping and gnashing of teeth on judgment day. And, and, and there's, a, there's, there's this idea that there's no wrath of God in the New Testament is simply not true. And the reason is, is that we, we tend, because of Jesus, we have the solution to all of the natural consequence of sin. But because we have the solution, we don't hardly pay attention to the, to the problem anymore. It's like polio and pneumonia, as Ethan Magnus likes to say, as polio and, and pneumonia are still big problems, but because we have vaccines now, that we don't really worry about them too much. Right? And, and in the same way, sin is still a big deal, but because of Jesus, it's not a different God in the New Testament. It's just that we're living in a different part a different time after the vaccine of Christ's salvation has come and ultimately it leads us to fall back on what we don't understand and trust God here's what we can say about these wars and this violence we can say just a few things to tick them off we can say we, we know from scripture they are we're to understand them as as God working out his greater purposes they are just punishment for sin they are they are just and the result of really God has been patient in fact he's before he's, he smites, he, he's been patient for 400 years with these people. They're not ethnic cleansing. Some today have said, well, it's ethnic cleansing. It's not, it has nothing to do with racial motivation. You see all kinds of examples that refute that. Nor are they the work of some sort of petty, whimsical, vindictive God who gets his jollies out of this. They are painful but necessary punishments to maintain a just world we say, why, why, would any, why would a loving society send anyone to jail? Well, when you think about it, you can come up with a few reasons. Because a loving society wouldn't not send someone to jail. And really, the society doesn't send anyone to jail. It's the person who commits the crime. All of this is essential for God's building of a nation. You couldn't build a nation any other way in those days and that time. So this is continual work of God to fulfill the promise he gave to Abraham and the whole story said, I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. So whatever is happening here, even this terrible killing in the moment, God is promising is going to be used to bless all people. So however awful things seem to be, there's a larger upper story, a redemptive context that gives us hope that God's good purposes can be trusted. And we were, we're reminded, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. It's just that awful. It's just the way the consequences are. But the gift of God is eternal life.
and that comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means that the only cycle to breaking that ongoing, the only way to break that cycle of sin and punishment, sin and punishment, destruction and so forth, is for God to step in and bear the punishment himself so it could be broken. And that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. Friends, here's the truth. Because God so often showers us with grace and we live on this side of Jesus who has borne our sin, I think we lose sight of the justice of God. We lose sight of the awfulness of sin and the impact of what the Bible says. When we read about the execution of the Canaanites, we ought not to ask, how could God do that? The question is really, why would he not kill us all? The shocking part of the story isn't, you know, defeating the Canaanites. The shocking part is God's love for his rebellious people, not his wrath toward some other rebels. From the moment of our, Ralph Sproul says this, R.C. Sproul, from the moment of our conception, we're all under God's just death sentence. Every moment of every day is a momentary stay of execution. When you think of it in those terms, we realize that we're all sinners, but praise God, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to rescue sinners. He came to end the sort of brutality that we see and he died a sinner's death that we might live. And may we who are called by his name never lose sight of that amazing grace. Now, I didn't tie everything up in a bow and leave everyone all happy. And, oh, now I get all the problems of the Bible. But there are some things to think about there, and I hope it's been helpful. We've, we'll talk more about it as we go. Let's, let's scoot back into the story, into the text, and move on. Because Moses is dead, and now who comes to the fore? Who's the new leader? Joshua gets handed the leadership baton. Boy, how do you like that? How'd you like to be him? First of all, you've got a daunting task of following in the shoes of Moses, the guy with a stick that turns to a snake, the guy who can part the Red Sea through the power of God, who spoke face to face with God, and now you get to replace him, and you get to, re you get to lead some of the dumbest people in the world. I mean, they, 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 they've, been, they've been doing nothing but complaining and murmuring and backsliding, wishing they could go back to Egypt from the day they came. And then in front of you, you've got the Jordan River. On the other side, you've got the Jericho. You've got all these armies. You've got all this stuff. Maybe you can relate to that, where, where you, you know it's time to step up. And courage and fear are about to come into a contest, and you're like, I just want to go home. I don't want to be here. You maybe have other formidable problems in front of you right now. I bet you do. I like this. I saw this here. This, this, hunter, this hunter said this. I did all my prep work. I searched out the best location for my tree stand, and I set it all up ahead of time. And Sunday morning, I woke up at 3 a.m., put on my camo, loaded my pack, and I set out for my deer stand. And I was, it was destined to be an epic hunt. And as I approached my deer stand, here is what I found. <laughs> and he says, I decided to go to church instead. <laughs> so, so God calls Joshua, lead these people right on into the promised land. How in the world is Joshua going to pull that off? Because as soon as he gets the leadership baton, he figures out he's got a, he's got a bear in his tree stand. He's up against some huge obstacles, just like we think when we think about phobias and fears and all of the things in our lives. What does Joshua need to do the impossible? Well, he needs the same thing Moses needed, the same thing you need, the same thing I need. Here's what God says to him. 
Look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. God says, okay, <clears throat> be strong and courageous. Because you are going to lead these people. Verse 7, he says it again. Be strong and very courageous. Obey all the law and you hang in there. Verse 9 says it again. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged because the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Three times. I think God wants him to know that he's supposed to be strong and courageous, don't you? So you think about the fears that you face in your life. You know, a lot of times I think when there's a... We just want to avoid the bear and the tree stand. Sometimes God calls us to do something like he's calling Joshua and we just say no. If life is a swimming pool, sometimes we just do our best to stay in the shallow end, don't we? That way we can keep our feet firmly on the bottom and keep our neck above and stay in control and all that. Sometimes I think God might want more. That he would be honored with more faith, more courage. Is he wanting something more from you, do you think? My dog, Rambo, is a fearful dog. Um, the name Rambo, we didn't give him. We inherited this dog, and we inherited all his fears with him. He's a little guy, and he's, very, he's kind of a little bit afraid of everything. So he can't, he's afraid of the stairs. So he gets up the first flight of stairs, but then he sits at the landing, and he kind of looks at the last three like, oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. He paces, and he wanders, and sometimes he just kind of gets his nerve up, and his courage overcomes his fear, and up he goes the last three stairs. Wow, good job, Rambo. Way to go. Came, down the, came out of the bedroom the other night in the morning. There he was sitting on the landing. He stayed there all night. Just couldn't get up those last three stairs. Poor guy. He's also deaf. Um, that's a recent phenomenon, which took us a while to figure out because he never actually obeyed before that. So <laughs> it was hard to figure out. In other words, Rambo, my dog, is fearful and deaf and disobedient. In other words, he's a lot like me and you. And the children of Israel, whose fear kept them from so many things for so long, who heard but didn't do anyway. Fear is what kept them from doing what God wanted. God's waiting for us to get into the deep end, and sometimes it's our fears that keep us from going up the stairs or going to the deep end to be strong and courageous. But the words there, five simple words that God said to them, I will be with you changes everything about how you can be strong and courageous. Because they had some big obstacles in front of them. The first obstacle they had was, who knows what it was, the first thing they had in front of them. Jordan River. I've been there, seen it. It didn't seem that scary to me, but the timing is everything. Look at Joshua 3.15. It says, now the Jordan was at what? Flood stage. How do you feel when you're standing before a river that's at flood stage? It's a little scary. It's a little creepy. It's, you know, you're thinking, I'm going to get swept away. There's, you know, there's, you know, stuff, big logs coming down the river. It's brown. It's scary. You can't see the bottom. You don't know what you're going to get into. And they got to get across. Why would God pick the worst possible time to have them cross the river? I, I don't know exactly, but I think I have an idea. And that is, I think maybe that's the only way they would know it was really him. Because he wants them in the deep end. It's usually only in those moments when things look hopeless that we can really recognize that was God. 
And so the priests are instructed to go first. They're supposed to carry the ark like, you know, uh, Indiana Jones and the Ten Commandments and all that stuff's in there. And, and the water's rushing and rising and everything. Here's what I'd be doing. I'd be going, okay, God, we're up to the edge of the river. Okay, go ahead and build a bridge or do something. Do the Red Sea thing again. You part it, and when it's dry, we'll go. That's not, that's not, what, that's not what happens. The priests are instructed to step into that river. Joshua 3, 15, 16. As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge. They stepped in. And then the water from upstream, upstream stopped flowing and piled up in a heap a great distance away. Verses 15 to 17. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests carried the Ark of the Covenant and they stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. They started this journey passing through on dry ground and they're going to they're gonna end it passing through on dry ground. It's just a reminder of a couple of things. One, sometimes, friends, you've got to put your river, you got to put your foot in the river first. God wants to see if you're going to trust Him. And then remember this, that when you do, you can always count on the fact that God's been working upstream long before. He's already at work. The upper story you can't see is happening. And so they get across. And they have a big celebration. Woohoo! And they put up a monument. They praise God. And then they, the party is short-lived because they look and there is Jericho looming and ominous and its big, thick walls. And it's time to go into battle because that's the only way they're going to be able to take that land that God has given them. So what do you do when you're getting ready for battle? How do you prepare for battle? Do you carb load? Do you do seal training? Do you put on loud music, eye of the tiger, and prance around and pat each other on, on, on the shoulder pads? Do you sharpen your weapons? Do you paint your face? Well, here's what God does. He says, okay, it's time for battle. First thing he does, he tells them to do something a little bit crazy. He says, okay, first thing, all the men get circumcised. What? All the soldiers get circumcised. That, that's right. Can you imagine that speech, Joshua, like, like Mel Gibson with his face painted, prancing around on his horse? Gentlemen, you know, <laughs> God wants us to do what? And I, I think it's a good reminder. As these guys are, are sitting there now without patient surgery and laid up for about three days, getting ready to go into battle, is a reminder that sometimes if you're one of those people who feels like you don't have an able body to do what you wish you could do, remember, the most important thing to God is not your able body and your physical strength. It's your willing heart and your obedience. The most important thing to God is not your able body and your physical strength. It is your willing heart and your obedience. And so he has these people ready. And now they've got this big wall around them around Jericho was, was known to be impenetrable. Outer wall about six feet thick, thick and inner wall about 12 feet thick. Guards stationed at it and they come up against this wall and there's nothing they can do. And what are they going to do? What's the battle plan? God, you're going to give us a battering ram, explosives, a helicopter? What, what, what's going to happen here? Well, first thing is get circumcised. Show that you're my people. Be obedient. And then God delivers the battle plan. He says, here you go. Here's how we're going to knock this out. Okay, ready? And they're like, okay. Verse 3, chapter 6. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do it for six days. Do it once a day for six days. Just march. Okay? 
and have the priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound of a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and all the people will go up, and every man will go straight in. That's the battle plan. I'm just going to ask you a question, okay? If you're going into battle, okay, and you have an option of having one of these with you, or one of these, which do you want? Your call. And again, we see God's ways are not our ways. Because I promise you that experienced fighter man Joshua, when he was drawing up his battle plans, probably did not have the words marching band in them. So, so that's a little concerning. So Joshua maybe thanks God, and then maybe it's an inside job, right? There must be someone on the inside. We've got some people in there that are going to work us. And, and God says, well, actually, sort of, yes. There, there, there is actually one, there's a prostitute inside, Rahab, that she's on our side. But other than that, nobody. Okay, so God, you want, you're going to inflict very personal and painful wounds on all my soldiers so that we can't really fight. And then instead, you're going to have us be a marching band and, and shout at them and say, we're going to blow, we're going to blow your walls down. And this is going to work because we have a prostitute on the inside. So you see how God, through these story of the Old Testament, often stacks the deck against himself and against all odds. I want to invite you to think for a moment about what the wall is in your life, where the odds seem stacked against you, a challenge that is rising up and seems impossible. Think about it. I don't know what yours is. It could be anything from health news to a relationship or a family that's disintegrated, or a person you've been trying to reach, or impact, but you can't seem to make any headway. Can't get over that wall. Maybe, maybe you have a wall in your marriage, or as a result of a loss of a marriage, or a loss of someone dear to you, or you have a thick wall around your heart due to some sinful choices you've made, or just how you've been hurt, or you've just let that thick wall around your heart get there, As you think about your wall, remember this. God says to you, He says to me, He says to all of us, be strong and courageous because I will be with you. Be strong and courageous because I will be with you. What happened then was that God delivered exactly as he said because God was great God was good God was faithful they marched around six times seven times seven days they did exactly as he said blew the horns and the walls came tumbling down Joshua 6.20 says that the army shouted and all of that the walls collapsed everyone charged straight in and they took the city and this was the way God was fulfilling that promise to Abraham to make a great nation and be a blessing to all people and so, friends, as you think about your own situation and the walls that need to come down that God wants to come down in your life, remember this, courage is not the absence of fear. It's moving ahead in spite of fear. You probably have those fears that you're thinking about. I just want to ask you, is it time to move forward in spite of the fear or the disobedience that has kept you on the landing or the shallow end for so long? 
One of the ways you do that is to focus on God's bigness, not your smallness. Don't think about the size of the wall. Think about the size of the God who can bring it down. Instead of asking how big I am compared to the wall, we've got to learn to ask how big is God compared to the wall. This God who is great, good, and faithful says this, I am with you. So, how do we be strong and courageous? When, when courage and fear battle, how do we allow courage to win out? Do you just push a button? Do you draw it up from within itself? No. Here's how you do it. You remember this. Here's the thing. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. You're still going to have the fear, but when you draw God into the equation, it changes everything. Courage is our fears fortified by faith. And we find the ability to be strong and courageous because of God. So I asked my Twitter and Facebook followers this week, hey, could you give me a five-word sentence, just a five-word sentence that represents a lie that we hear or that comes from the evil one or that we tell ourselves a five-word sentence that robs us of strength and courage and faith. And I got hundreds of responses. Let me share a couple of those five-word phrases that rob us of strength and courage. You'll never be good enough. Maybe some of these phrases are yours. I can't do this anymore. I don't deserve real love. You are not needed. I never really loved you. You never do anything right. This doesn't look good. God isn't enough for me. I can't, I can do it myself. I will never be free. I just feel so guilty. I am not good enough. It's too late for you. You're never going to change. I got hundreds because this is our story. Sometimes our lower story lives there on the landing, in the shallow end, before the wall. And I want you to hear these words from Joshua 1.5. God says, No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, Joshua, so I will be with you. Five words. I will never leave you. And those are the five words I invite you to invite into your life and heart that will change everything and allow you to be strong and courageous. Let me invite you to close this time with me by a kind of call and response, hovering around those words, I will be with you. The five words that need to replace all the other five-word sentences that come into our minds and hearts and dominate our thinking and leave us in fear and disobedience. I will be with you. I'm going to read a, read a statement and then you say aloud as a declaration of your faith and a reminder of God's promise and a statement to those around you and a statement to yourself and a statement to God that you believe it when God says, I will be with you. Will you do that with me? I invite you to stand. And the words on the screen, I will be with you, are what you'll say. I'll, uh, you'll say that after each phrase I, I, I say. Are you ready? Friends, when people accuse you of not being strong enough, not being smart enough, not being good enough or able enough, remember this, be strong and courageous because God promises 
I will be with you. That's right. When the wall in front of you is too high to get over, too far to see around, just remember this. Be strong and courageous because God says, I will be with you. When you feel beaten down, when you feel discouraged, when you feel tired, like you want to throw in the towel, remember, I will be with you. When you feel like you can't keep going, remember, I will be with you. When you see a scary and uncertain future, God says, I will be with you. When guilt and shame control you more than God controls you, remember, I will be with you. When you feel like you want a new start, but you feel that God would never give that to you, remember His promise. He says, I will be with you. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as you will, mountain, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And you can do that not on your own strength, but you can do it because, one last time, I will be with you. God, help us to be strong and courageous, not because we are strong and courageous, but because you are with us. We trust you as faithful. We know you are good, and we believe you are great. Now weave our stories into yours as we surrender them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.